Well, shall we turn to Isaiah chapter 29 this evening? Isaiah chapter 29. I'm going to read the whole chapter, which is not massively long, but it's a, a generous portion. And just to help us as we hear the word of God tonight, that one of the Apostle Paul's favorite books was the book of uh, Isaiah. And he cites that all the way through the book of Romans. And likewise for Jesus Christ, it was clearly a favorite of his as well. So let's hear Isaiah 29, the whole chapter. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel... There shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers. And I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low from the earth. You shall speak, and from your dust your speech shall be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech will whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitudes of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you'll be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel and all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night as when a hungry man dreams and behold he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Verse 9. Astonish yourselves, and be astonished. Blind yourselves, and be blind. Be drunk, and not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed when men give it to the one who can read saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, 
and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing should make, should say of its maker, sorry, but the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Verse 17, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel, and those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. That's the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 29. And the title of the sermon, I've got a short title and I've got a long title. The first title, the short title is this, The Deaf Shall Hear. And the long title is this. It's not that much longer, but the long title is this. The deaf shall hear, the blind shall see. The deaf shall hear, the blind shall see. So here in Isaiah chapter 29, we have the gospel presented to us. But uh, Isaiah is full of pleasant surprises. Like I've said, it's a real favorite of Jesus Christ who cites this very chapter. He cites from many places in Isaiah as Paul does as well. And, uh, and what we find is, is that it says in, in 29.18, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. And as we sang earlier on in that hymn, that outside of Christ every one of us is blind and deaf and dumb and mute but it's the miraculous supernatural power of God which brings about what Jesus spoke about, the new birth, when he said, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's not a command saying, 
that we need to make ourselves born again. It's, it's stating a spiritual truth that we have here in different words in Isaiah 29, which leads us, this is an introduction, hopefully for overflowing gratitude for us for the gospel. Because we remember that hymn by John Newton, who himself was really lost, knew he was lost, and then he was brought to Christ, and he, he wrote this in Amazing Grace. It's the second verse. He writes this, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed." How does the grace of God appear to you tonight? Is it something that really thrills your soul, which is where this man, John Newton, came to. And we've got three headings for us tonight. The first one, we're going to go down into the valley. It's really called the actual people of God, which we get often in Isaiah. He tells us how the people of God in his own day really were. And it's the first heading is the actual pe people of God. But the second heading is the promise. We have this gospel promise. And then thirdly, we finish off with the revived people of God. The revived people of God. So let's get to our first heading, first of all, which is the actual people of God. And we have to say, as we begin in verse uh, 1 and 29, that we're going to go something down into the valley today uh, and see how Isaiah paints for us the people of God. And what does he say? He says, well, he explains their hypocrisy and that they're far from God. And and we get these two sides of the coin in the Word of God. We find when Paul was preaching to Antioch Pisidia, and he explains to them, he says this, when they carried out all that was written of him, talking of Jesus, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And, and we think, well, could there be anything more of less hope than to have delivered to you the body of Jesus of Nazareth, lifeless, dead, scarred, wounded, the bloody body of Jesus that they're then going to deliver into the tomb. And we would, could you imagine if we had a gospel where there was no resurrection? Could you imagine what kind of a message that would be? But praise God, after three days, God raised Jesus from the dead. And so, as we're going to find out about the people of God here, the actual people of God, it seems hopeless, it seems depressing, it seems very discouraging. But don't we find this time and time again through the Word of God? You could look around at the church today in Britain and, and, and in Europe and you could come to a similar conclusion. It could be very discouraging. But that's a, a biblical thing, as Isaiah found that here, as we'll find out in a moment. But we think about three Old Testament examples. We think about the Exodus and how God gave his promises to deliver them, and then they got to the edge of the Red Sea, and all the people of God can hear is the Egyptians chasing behind them, and it seemed to be hopeless. And then, at one minute to midnight, the Lord intervenes and parts the Red Sea, and life comes from God. How about Jonah? Jonah the prophet, who was preaching away, disobeying God, went in the wrong, well not preaching, he was actually, well he was preaching, but he was a prophet first of all, and he was called to go to Nineveh, but he went in the opposite direction. And then what happened, the sailors actually threw him into the sea, 
to be a dead man, to kill him off. And the sailors don't read the rest of the book, but what happens? At the exact time when he is thrown into the sea, what does God do? A great fish or a whale comes past the boat at exactly the time and swallows up Jonah. And Jonah's not read the whole book of Jonah either. At this point, he's now, he's now in, deep in the heart of, of this whale and uh, for three days and three nights until in the end, the whale vomits him out onto the beach, pointing towards Nineveh, where he's exactly supposed to go. And we see what seems to be hopeless and then resurrection life. And one other example in Ezekiel 37, the state of the people of God looks abysmal. In fact, the vision is a valley of dry bones, very dry bones. And the Lord asks Ezekiel this question, Son of man, can these bones live? And he gives a very wonderful answer. He says, oh Lord, you alone know. And the fact is they can, if God intervenes. And so let's take a look at verse 10 here to look at two things that are revealed to us of the condition and the state of the people of God in Isaiah's day. And verse 10 perhaps summarizes for us what Isaiah is bringing across or the Lord is bringing across through Isaiah. The word of God says, For the Lord has poured out upon you this is the people of God, the Old Testament church. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And then it says, and this vision that uh, all this has become to you like words of a book that is sealed when men give it to the one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to the one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says he cannot read. It's a day of judgment on the people of God. This is not from the devil. This is from God himself, almighty God. It's what's known as the doctrine of judicial hardening. People who'd had preachers time and time again. And here Isaiah is preaching the word of God, preaching the word of God, preaching the word of God. But they've, they're spiritually blind. In fact, at one stage earlier on in the prophecy, it says, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. But it says here, for the Lord himself has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. What a tragedy. In fact, these verses are cited in Isaiah 29.10 in the book of Romans about the uh, the Old Testament people of God, Israel. And like I've said, the doctrine is this deep sleep that's from the Lord. If you're going to keep rejecting the word of God, if people are going to keep rejecting the gospel that's preached to them, God says, okay, well, I'll, I'll give you a spirit of deep sleep. And don't you think this could describe our own nation today? A nation that's known so much of the gospel in the last few centuries? You could be on the bus, couldn't you, today? You could be reading your Bible and decide to evangelize someone as you've got your Bible, and you think they'd be thrilled, but they would probably start mocking you and say, listen, you know, who cares about your dusty old book? And yet that dusty old book that says on the front, the Holy Bible, 
is the path to eternal life. So that's one of the things about the people of God there, this deep sleep. But if you look in 29.13, the people of God had gone from that deep sleep into a worse state, in verse 13, into full-on hypocrisy. What does it say? And the Lord said, and this is what Jesus cites, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. But the point is in verse 13 that they've given themselves over to religious hypocrisy. Now, generally in Britain today, there's such a falling away from the church that it's hard for us to really comprehend this, that people could still be religious and yet be totally hypocritical. And yet in Isaiah's day, people didn't give up religion. They didn't give up necessarily going to the synagogue or the temple. They kept going to the temple. They kept going to the synagogue. But by and large, they were totally hypocritical. As it says here, these people draw near with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. What a tragic thing it is. They, they thought they were on the right path, these Pharisees whom Jesus applies it to later, and yet they were in complete and total darkness. And Jesus responds, doesn't he, to these super hostile body of Pharisees and scribes, and he says to them, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said this? And he speaks about the blind leading the blind. In effect, in Jesus' day and in Isaiah's day, the priest was blind. The people were blinded. In fact, the people actually wanted blind priests. They didn't want the preaching of the Word of God. And it seems if the people are left without any hope in Isaiah's day. But praise God, we're never left without hope. We're never left without hope. And our second heading is the promise. If God left us in our sins, it would be a hopeless situation. But our second heading is the promise. And if you look in your Bible in verse 17, which is where this promise begins, this great turning point now in Isaiah 29, what does it say in verse 17? Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day... The deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. That there's this wonderful promise that God Almighty is going to turn things around. People are living in great darkness in Isaiah's day as they were in the day of Jesus. But God is going to intervene as we have in this verse in 18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. In that day, the eyes of the blind shall see. And here, in this occasion, it's talking about spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness. We're right now in the middle of this section of Isaiah, which is known as the Book of Judgment. And this 
sectionizer ends with chapter 35, which foreshadows the literal physical miracles that the Messiah would do when he comes. And in Isaiah 35, it's talking about literal blind people having their eyes opened, and these miracles happened in the life of Jesus. But here, we're talking about spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness. Do you remember when you first became a Christian? And how overflowing with joy you were. You thought, I've got to tell everybody about what's happened to me. And he'd go and tell people. And it's, mm, it's grunts and whatever else. Do you remember that? And you think, well, what's wrong with them? Can't they see it? You can see it. And how can you see it? Because God has supernaturally intervened and turned your spiritual blindness and given you sight. What a gospel. What joy. What thankfulness we have tonight. The words of that hymn, Lord, I was blind, Lord, I was deaf. And God promises he's going to intervene. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. What are we doing here tonight? We're preaching from a book. In terms of entertainment levels, there's no Anton Deck here tonight and flashing lights and, you know, and, uh, and game show hosts and, and so forth. No, there's, I've got, we've got on the pulpit what's, what's central to the church. It's the words of a book, but in that book are the words of life. What a wonderful thing it is. So here we're seeing this promise here. Uh, we see that the deaf shall hear the blind shall see, and we're reminded to let these words sink into our ears. And Jesus said that in Luke, 90, Luke 9, 44. He said, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And so what we've got here are glorious promises of the new birth. And because everything in the kingdom is supernatural, we are never without hope. Never write off family members thinking they're getting older, they're not showing any signs of interest, or they're showing some signs, but they're not coming to Christ. Never write people off, because no one knows where the wind's going to blow from. As we see here, this promise of the new birth, which is a life-changing experience for an individual, or even, as in Ezekiel 37, with a whole nation which had been turned to the Lord, which we saw fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We think about what Peter wrote about in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, and just think about this in your own life for a moment. Peter writes this, and he was an eyewitness of Jesus. You and I are not an eyewitness of Jesus. What do you do if you meet someone who professes to be a Christian claiming they had a vision last week of Jesus? What do you do? You ignore that because they didn't. We're, we have Jesus revealed to us through the Scriptures. But listen to what Peter says. He says, Though you have not seen him, that's Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you love Jesus Christ tonight? Well, how? How can you say, well, I do love him. I, I love him with all of my heart. Your wife says to you, who do you love more, me or Jesus? Well, 
You've got to say, I really do love you, but I love Jesus more. How can you say that? You've never met him. It's because the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the blind and opens the ears of the deaf that we hear the voice of Christ speaking to us through Holy Scripture. As Samuel Rutherford spoke about the loveliness of Christ. What a gospel that we have. And God promises to do this. As Jesus said in his own ministry, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. And listen, I want to exhort us in this before we come to our last heading, that we can taste a measure of that joy in this world, a measure of that joy as we hear the gospel, as we have fellowship with Christians in the church, but it will be really consummated in heaven, that heaven will be a world of joy. Can you imagine that? Heaven will be a world of joy. No funerals in heaven. No, no dusting. We have visitors in our house, and Maria gets all busy, the hoovering and the dusting. I said, listen, listen, this person's not coming to do a dust inspection in our house. The fact is there'll be no dusting in heaven. There'll be no sweating in heaven. Heaven will be a world of joy. But again, let's come back down to this world for now, for our third and last heading. The first is the actual people of God, and then secondly, the promise. And thirdly, is the revived people of God. As we come to a close from Isaiah 29, as we go from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, the revived people of God. And don't we agree that the church is in desperate need for reviving in our own nation and that we're in desperate need of, of being revived as well? Is there anybody who would sit here tonight and say, well, that's, that's not for me, that must be for other people. No, it, it's for all of us. And so the revived people of God really goes on from verse 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. And then verse 19 sounds like the Beatitudes. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. One of the first marks of when a when our eyes are open and our, and our ears are unstopped, is that a new joy comes. Not a joy from the world. Not a joy from circumstances. It's a joy in the gospel. That joy is restored. And then it goes on. It says, the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. That's one of the names of God. That suddenly there's a, a new joy that's in God himself. That's what happens when the people of God are revived that they begin to rejoice in God in who he is and his being and and this name the holy one of Israel is again one of the, the names that's very commonly used by Isaiah interestingly when Jesus came what was the first thing the demons would cry out the demons seemed to identify who Jesus was before anybody else did they said I know who you are the holy one of Israel and so Jesus is, oh, no matter of Israel, but the Holy One of God. The demons knew who he was. He was the Holy One. But the people of God, when they're revived, they begin to rejoice in the holiness of God. That God is wholly other. 
What else do we find as we move on? It says in verse 22, Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Here's the promises of a revived people of God. That Jacob shall no more be ashamed. What a different picture to what we read about earlier on. The actual people of God, until God intervenes, they're full of hypocrisy, they're full of sleepiness and blindness, but now God intervenes. It says, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Names that at one stage would misuse the name of the Lord. The Pharisees would abuse the name of God, thinking they were following him, but they weren't. But instead, they're going to sanctify God's name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob. And look at this. And will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Isn't that a wonderful mark of a revived people of God? Now, before we close, let me simply read one little verse from Hebrews chapter 12, which talks about true worship. Because if there is true worship, there's obviously also a false worship. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful. So there's a thankfulness for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Hebrews 12, 28. So if there is an acceptable way of worship, there clearly is an unacceptable way of worship, which is what the Pharisees and, and the unrevived people of God were doing uh, before God intervened. But here it says, let us offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And here, one of the marks of the revived people of God is that they will stand in awe of the God of Israel. They will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Does that describe you? I think we could all say, I've got room to grow more in standing in awe of the God of Israel. To standing in awe even, even that the word of God is being preached here, that we would stand in awe at the preaching of the word of God, that we would stand in awe of the reading of the word of God, that God's words would strike us in a new way. And the reality is that we can't revive ourselves. Only God can do it. But here's the wonderful thing. God can. What's impossible with man is possible with God. So I hope these words are filling us with hope because it says in 34, as we close, and those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. And there are promises here for us tonight to look to the Lord that God would revive the church in our own day. And we're going to close in a moment. We're going to sing. We're going to sing before we do. I'm going to pray and hopefully we can join together and say, please, oh God, will you revive your church again and revive us as well? We're going to pray for that. And then we're going to sing this wonderful hymn.
Oh, for a thousand tongues 